Times Like Now is an interview program, interviews with interesting people who are doing cool stuff. My name is Trevor Collins. The elderly in the United States are living longer and longer, and this is putting a great strain on the long-term care system. Elderly care is a big concern for millions of people, and my guest today, Carrie Hutchison, has seen the effects up close and personal on this episode of Times Like Now. Hello, Carrie. Thank you so much for joining me on Times Like Now. Real quickly, can you tell me what is your position within the elder care industry? Sure. Um, I am the community relations coordinator uh, in Bend, Oregon at a retirement and assisted living community. Okay. Now, I've been doing a bit of research on the subject. I, of course, have you know some personal history with this as well. But according to what I've been reading, it's approximate in-home elder care is around $55,000 a year. Does yes. that sound accurate? Yeah, that's about right. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Now that's in-home. Now mm-hmm. what you're doing within a facility... Is it more than that per year for a resident? Yes, it absolutely is more than that. I mean, I don't like to dwell on the economics or the money because there is so much more involved here. The emotions and the, and the, the strain and the stress of watching your parents or elderly um, go down this road. But it is an, you know, an inevitable thing happens to everybody. But the financial burden upon it is a, is a big issue. So just tell me a little bit about your experience. How long have you been in the industry? Start there. So I started working in long-term care in 1998. Uh, I was a volunteer coordinator at a retirement and intermediate care facility in Portland. And just a little, a little background, intermediate care is what assisted living used to be before there was an assisted living. <laughs> so assisted living is, is relatively new. Um, some of the first in Oregon, Oregon was one of the first states in the nation actually to, to spearhead assisted living. And we're looking at like the mid 80s. So in terms of what's been happening with long-term care and elder care, uh, assisted living is a relatively new thing. So I started in 98. I was volunteer coordinator. I got my assisted living administrator certificate because back then you didn't have to be licensed. Uh, And then I put that on hold for a little while and uh, worked in a skilled nursing facility as admission and discharge planner. And I've done other jobs in long-term care since then, medical records, hematology referral. Um, but mostly, most of my experience is in admission, admission and discharge planning. Okay. So you're right at the front gates, meeting families, working with families directly. Yes, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. It's really... Um, It is, when you talk about the emotional part, it is overwhelming for some of these families. Um, It's overwhelming for me because I, I, you know, do develop a relationship with the families and their residents or their loved ones. 
And I want to make sure that they get the absolute best placement. And one of the things that I'm really transparent about is the financial piece. Um, It's really expensive. And there is a population that falls through the crack. There's the population of those Medicaid recipients who have very few resources, very few financial resources. And so their care is covered at a very high percentage rate. They still have a little bit they have to pay, but it's usually not an uncomfortable amount for them because all of their needs are taken care of in the assisted living community. All of their meals are provided, their housekeeping, their laundry, and their care needs. And then there's another population who have planned for retirement. They have long-term care insurance, have a pension, they have a home to sell, they have resources. And so they are careful about planning and how much things are gonna cost, but the burden is not so much. They, they are comfortable with it. And then that other population is the one in between that. Maybe they planned for retirement, but they had a catastrophic illness that wiped them out. Or maybe they didn't own a home that they could sell to help pay. Or maybe they don't have any loved ones. They have no family that can't help. But they have too many resources to qualify for Medicaid and not enough resources to pay out of pocket. And those are the families that break my heart. Now, how often do you see that realistically in a a year, let's say, or in a month? I can tell you that in a week, I get three to four calls daily of families who do not have enough money to pay out of pocket, but do not qualify for Medicaid. Three or four calls every day. So those are the people and the families that I can feel for as well, because my family was in that situation as well. And it falls to the family then to be that provider and that caretaker, which then compounds the stresses of their emotional stress and then the financial stresses. And this is beginning to bankrupt the sons and daughters, the, you know, adult children of these elderly parents as well. And it's becoming this, this cycle of sorts that is, seems to be self-perpetuating where it's bankrupting the adults and their children. Yes. Yes, it is. And it's, it's really difficult because I, what is, what is difficult for me is that here I am at the front line. They've come to me They've toured my building. I've given them all of the literature, all of the marketing material. We've talked about what the financial cost is going to be right up front. And then they just, they're like, well, what do we do? We can't afford it. Now, fortunately, I've lived in Bend uh, for about 17 years. And I have contacts in the community that maybe can help. I know the case manager's you know, that work for aging and people with disabilities. I know the buildings that do maybe have a bond room, um, which is a little different than a Medicaid room. I know the in-home care folks who could maybe provide 
um, at home, you know, home care, not home health, but home care while they're trying to make another plan. Um, but it's, it's really overwhelming. It's overwhelming for the elderly person that's coming into our care, maybe coming into our care. And it's overwhelming for the families. There's a lot of moving pieces and there's a lot of things that they don't understand. Um, and then there's the whole medical piece. So you have a son, adult children caring for their aging parents with no clinical background and they don't know what to look for. They know their parents, but they can't look at their parent as a resident or a patient. They're only looking at the parent as a son or daughter because, well, that's what they should be doing. That's their mom or dad or grandparents or aunts and uncles, right? You shouldn't be looking at your family member as a caregiver or a care recipient. No, not to say not. That, right. I mean, not to say you shouldn't care about them, but it, it's a very different hat one wears when one has to provide care. No, and it does certainly require, I would say, professional uh, care workers to really take care of somebody in that position, especially given, let's say, autism or dementia. When those things begin happening, um, people become a danger to themselves and to others at times it can happen and should require professional care. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So I do my best to try and reach out and find those resources, you know, for people that, you know, families that come to me and I tell them I've been doing this a long time. And if you have questions about long-term care, if you have questions about in-home care, please call me. Even if we can't place your family member with us, I want to be a resource for you because I just, I can't, I couldn't live with myself if I let a family flounder with all of the decisions that they have to make. It's a lot. Right. And it becomes your job in a sense to educate them on the system. Yes. Yes. I'm sure you spend a lot of time explaining these things to these people who have just got into these positions. And, and it's especially difficult if you haven't, um, if mom has been fine for a while and you've moved out of town and you have conversations with mom and she's repeating all of the things that she, you know, you would want her to, to say, are you taking your medication? Yes, I am. Did you go to the doctor? Yes, I did. What did the doctor say? The doctor said, I'm doing great. Fantastic. They get off the phone and then you go to visit mom at Christmas and the house is not being cared for. Um, She's not taking her medication properly. She didn't make her last doctor's appointment. And you begin to suspect that it might be time for her not to drive anymore. You know, that, that things have gotten to a, a very different level. Um, And so now you're looking at this going, wait a minute, I thought everything was fine. What happened? And now you're time. Time is time is what happened. We (laughs) we know, we know that um, time has a way to creep um, Mm -hmm. and to move uh, rather quickly at times as, as well. These things can happen almost overnight, um, which then puts more stress and strain on a family and wear and tear on the family's mm-hmm. uh, mental, emotional, and of course, monetary um, systems. So what else 
can people do on a national level? Let's say if they don't know you, Carrie, and they're not able to speak with you, where do people go? I mean, I hope that there are other people like you in these facilities helping others, but every state is different, is it not? Every state is different. And I can't speak to what California does or Washington does. I can only speak to Oregon because that's where I've you know, spent the majority of my career is working in Oregon. So I only know what the rules and regulations are here and what resources we have here. I do, I do feel that people who work in long-term care in a position similar to mine, where they're doing admission and discharge planning must have a heart for it (laughs) or they will not be successful. And you have to be willing to go that extra bit and, you know, try and find the resources. So if somebody is here in Oregon, the best thing they could probably do is to start early. Don't wait. Don't wait until a family member has a fall and breaks a hip and now needs placement after rehab into an assisted living. Don't wait. Start now while your family is young and still able to make decisions for themselves. Have that difficult conversation. And make sure that certain things are in place. Get a POA, a power of attorney, uh, you know, make an advanced directive, talk to the physician about, you know, what you would like to have happen uh, and make sure that, you know, you understand how the system works and call aging and people with disabilities, call um, area agency on aging. Um, There are resources. Call the ombudsman for your neighborhood, for your area, for your state or county, because they are more than happy to have these conversations. And they would much rather talk about what services are available now while everybody's calm and, you know, thinking clearly than when it's an emergency and there are no placements available. Fine advice. Has this been having all of these things that we've been discussing, um, has this been having an effect on the, let's say the the working the working, uh, what would you call them, the workers within this industry? Is there a lack of workers? Has there been turnover? Is that a problem that you see? It's a huge problem. Um, caregiver burnout is a real thing. Um, the individuals who get involved in long term care who are direct care staff, frontline staff who are performing very personal things. You know, they're bathing people, they're toileting people, they're helping people get dressed, they're administering medication, they're helping them get down to the dining room for meals, they're housekeeping for them. These are, they're doing all of that. um, And they're doing it, you know, 10 and 12 hours a day, sometimes six days a week, sometimes at the expense of their own health. um, And it is a real thing. You, you know, the well that we all have of compassion, kindness, and patience is, is getting a little shallow. And especially now, the pandemic has had an enormous effect on caregiver burnout. And it's been especially difficult for our residents who were not able to see their families and only had our frontline staff to care for them and have relationships with and to be their lifeline to the outside world. 
it's it's very difficult. The turnover is significant. Um, and as a company, I feel the company I work for does a marvelous job of supporting their, you know, frontline staff. Uh, it's not just pizza parties, you know, it's not like that. Um, we, we help find daycare for them. We do food boxes. We do retention bonuses. We do raises. We also act as emotional support. Come into my office, shut the door and cry for a few minutes. It's okay. We understand. Do you um, do that for the families as well as the residents? <laughs> yeah, I do. I would imagine. <laughs> Yeah, I do. Because it's tough. But my my advice to any family member who thinks that, you know, gosh, what's going to happen? Start now. Make those decisions early. These are difficult conversations for, I think, I would say, especially for Americans, but for anybody to have. Nobody wants to think about that. They want to see their parents as they have always seen their parents but that's not the truth anymore. And I think there is a, a bit of a fear to have these discussions around the dinner table in our, in our state of, of the United States. And I think people living longer lives because of healthcare and medicines, um, these conversations are more and more important every day. Where would people turn if they're not in the state of Oregon? So every state has a division of the Department of Health and Human Services. And within that department, there is an, there is an arm for aging and people with disabilities. So that's a great place to start. Area Agency on Aging is not just an Oregon thing. That's a national thing. Um, you can do a Google search and, and find out where the nearest place to you would be. Um, and the ombudsman that is also a program where you can, you know, get more information. Going to the facility itself, though, going to the community itself, that's just the tip of the iceberg. Because we can't forget that a lot of communities are only business driven, they are only financially driven. And I think I lucked out, I'm lucky, my building is business driven, but it also cares a great deal about the elders in our community. So, you know, Places like um, A Place for Mom, that is a referral agency and helps families try to find the best placement. You know, that's great if you have a lot of financial resources, but they're not going to be much help for somebody who falls into that middle crack, that little canyon where there's not enough money and too much money all at the same time. So those resources are available or, you know, those agencies are in every state. They might have a slightly different name, um, but a simple Google search will point you in the right direction. That's a, a great idea. Now, as far as on a national level and on a not just kicking the can down the road kind of situation, do you think this is something that the government should have a hand in as far as uh, federally taxed institutions, situations to provide for these kinds of people to make this kinds of care and facilities available, your personal opinion. 
and I'm sure many people would have a different viewpoint, but to keep those people from falling through those cracks, is it not, or is it the federal government's responsibility to have a hand? It absolutely is. And yeah, that's my opinion. But since I've been on the front line for a long time and I've seen it, yeah, it absolutely is. It's everybody's responsibility to care for the most fragile people in our communities, children, elders, and the disabled. It's our responsibility to make sure that those people don't fall through the cracks. And I absolutely think that the federal government needs to step in. I mean, universal health care <laughs> would go a long way to helping with some of these things. There should be more social programs for elders. I mean, they are some of the most precious things that we have in our lives and, and we should be taking care of them. I can speak uh, personally and, you know, my situation, my father, he had been a 40 year union man. So he was taken care of and my mother by the union, by his pension through the union, but -hmm. not everybody has that. And watching your parents that you love is going down this road. It's, it's debilitating, but you have to keep going and it can be quite a strain and a stress on, on people. It becomes a, a, a strange PTSD and kind of amnesia where you have to just deal with today and not think about, you know, what's coming or what mm-hmm. has been. Um, yeah, I can see that to be a, a stress. And I think you're right. I think the government should take a stand and take a step in with, as you said, universal health care. It's only a good idea. Yeah. Yeah, it, it absolutely is. And I, and I think that it is, I think that, I, I don't want to say that it's easy because it's not easy, but I think it comes to someone who works in healthcare to more easily compartmentalize their feelings about our residents. Um, because if you don't, it, it's going to break you. Um, and I don't think family members should be put in that position. I think a family member or a loved one who has an aging person in their life should be able to maintain that relationship without becoming a caregiver to them. If that is their choice, you know, I mean, if they choose to do it, that's one thing, but if I, I just, I think you should be able to maintain the relationship as adult child and parent or grandparent or aunt and uncle, whatever it, it happens to be. And I don't think that you should have to wear those caregiver, you know, clothes when there are other resources that could be available. This is a a, a bit of an invisible industry or an invisible um because whether it's paid or unpaid, it remains kind of an invisible situation. Because again, because people don't talk about it as much, but I'm reading some, some information here. Uh, according to the most recent data from AARP, an estimated 41.8 million people or 16.8% of the population currently provides care for an adult. And that's up from 2015. 
again, people are living longer and this is becoming a more and more obvious uh, real situation. And as you said, things are going to have to change because I see a lot of old people living on the streets who I don't think deserve or need to, or should be there. But this is where a lot of them fall through the cracks, as you mentioned. And, and I get calls weekly from aging and people with disabilities from case managers who have put, you know, an elderly person, you know, 65 years plus, 70 years plus, 80 years plus in a motel for three days just to get them off the street while they try and find placement for them. And I personally have gone to the shelter to assess a client to see if we could meet their needs. And I am happy to say that we could meet their needs and we were able to get them in uh, before it snowed. And I'm I was, so glad I mean, to hear that. <laughs> it did snow. I mean, it's, we moved her in on Friday and it snowed the next day. Um, and that was, that was a little while ago, obviously, because, you know, we're not snowing yet, but it uh, made me really happy. You know, uh, the case manager's like, look, I've called everybody else. I don't know what to do. And I said, well, we'll go and assess or we'll go see what we can do. And we made it happen. She came to us with nothing. Um, and I managed to get her a bed, a recliner, a TV, an end table, some clothes, some sheets, some towels, because we live in a great community that if you ask, they will come through. So I, 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 I see it. <laughs> I know you do. And I'm so glad that you are, you know, one one small person doing these big things in people's lives and, and they're not invisible. Uh, you prove that and you make them, I hope make them feel that they're not invisible because I've spoken to these people on the streets and I know that that's how they feel mm-hmm. uh, when they come to this place in their lives as if they don't matter anymore. And, and it's, it's a heartbreaker. It's tear jerking. I know. And thank you for, for doing it. Um, so what other, I guess, when you said you assess this, this woman, what goes into assessing somebody's situation to say yay or nay? So we look at a variety of factors. Um, clinically, we look medically, we look to see what comorbidities she has. So by that, I mean, um, if somebody has uh, renal failure, kidney failure, and uh, some cardiovascular issue. Um, Are they also diabetic? Um, Do they have a catheter? Do they have, you know, what, what is their health? So we're looking at their overall health. um, And then we're looking at, you know, what kind of services do they need? So somebody could come and live with us and be very independent for what are called activities of daily living or ADLs. And by those, we mean, you know, they can toilet themselves. They can go into the bathroom, sit down on the toilet, pull their pants up by themselves and do the hygiene piece that they're independent for that. Um, Some people though, come to us and need more help with that, perhaps because of, you know, limited mobility or range of motion, or perhaps they've had a stroke and they have some paralysis So we look at that whole picture. Where are they? Do they just need basic housekeeping? Do they just need nutrition? 
you know, maybe they are living on the street and they're not getting good meals and they're not taking their meds. So can we safely provide that care for them if we stabilize their medication and they're getting three meals a day and now, they're you, in a warm, you can, safe place? Now, let's you say know. you can provide that care, but again, mm-hmm. where does the money come from? Is, <laughs> is that not a part of the assessment? That is a part of the assessment. Yeah, it absolutely is. I mean, that's actually the first conversation I have with the family or the individual is this is how much it costs. And, you know, are you going to be paying out of pocket or are you, um, you know, a Medicaid client? And I hate having to ask that because I don't feel like their care should have, should be monetized. (laughs) It shouldn't be monetized. We shouldn't be looking for a way to make money off of somebody's health or, you know, lack of health, basically, or their inability to provide all of their care needs. If they can't do those things for themselves, we shouldn't be making money off. We should just be providing that care. Yeah, I can hear your compassion for this subject and for the work you live and the work you do and the, and the life you lead here in, in Bend, Oregon. Um, just in a few seconds left, Carrie, I really appreciate your time, your knowledge, your expertise here, and your compassion for the people that you serve in your community. I hope that there are others that are like-minded as you. And as you said, you think that there are, and, and I hope that there are. Um, thank you so much again, Carrie, for joining me tonight on the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure. I don't talk get to a- talk. I don't get to talk about it often enough. <laughs> well, I, uh, I, I hope you do. Maybe you should write some letters to our governmental uh, people that might be able to hear what you're saying. Maybe <laughs> it might be time for that. Thank you again. Thank you. Have a good evening. Past episodes of Times Like Now can be found wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks to the letter J. Cody Robertson for original music. My name is Trevor Collins. I can be reached Trevor at timeslikenow.com. Thank you for listening. I look forward to speaking with you all next time.